Hi, I'm Jade Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Good afternoon and welcome to A Public Affair. I am your host, Jade Isiri Ramos, filling in for the legendary Alan Ruff. Alan's taking a brief break, but he's going to be back as soon as next week. So um, I know we are all very excited. And I want to let our Thursday listeners remember, I want to remind you all that it is the middle of our pledge drive. So um, please, if you love the Thursday Public Affair, give us a call 608-256-2001 or go online to w. Um, ortfm.org and you can make a donation there. But let's get into the program. Today I am talking with one of the poets who is coming to the Ma- to the Wisconsin Book Festival Fall Festival or Fall Celebration, I think is what they call it. Um, and my, my guest is Jose Ol- Oliveras. Jose is the son of, a Me- of Mexican immigrants. His debut book of poems, Citizen Illegal, was a finalist for the Penn Jean Stein Award and the winner of the 2018 Chicago Review of Book Poetry Prize. It was named a top book of 2018 by the by NPR and New York Times, the New York Public Libraries, among others. And um, he is the author of his latest collection, Promises of Gold, which came out in February. Jose, welcome to the sh- the program. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I just did a brief uh, bio, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey into po- poems? What do we need to know about you? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in Calumet City, Illinois, which is a south suburb of Chicago. And I never thought that I would get into poetry. Um, You know, like you said in in your reading of my bio, both of my parents immigrated here from Jalisco, Mexico. Mm -hmm. And as the son of immigrants, I was kind of taught to be quiet, not draw attention to myself and just try not to make waves. Right. Just try to follow the rules and do the best that I can. And so I tried to do that. And then when I was in high school, um, what I found was that I had a lot of questions that I didn't necessarily have answers to. And poetry was the place where I saw, you know, my peers being able to ask those questions and have conversations about race and identity and sex and all of these things that we just didn't have a chance to talk about on the day-to-day basis. And that was where I began to ask myself, you know, am I quiet because I want to be quiet or am I just kind of living the life that a lot of other people have mapped out for me? And so poetry was kind of how I took control over my own life in a lot of ways. And Mm -hmm. so I'm really excited to be here to talk about poetry, to talk about my work. But for me, poetry has been a process of really learning to write my own story. Yeah, poetry is literally the opposite, or I guess, maybe not writing poetry, but but writing poetry for other people to read is the opposite of being quiet and, and staying in line, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And I was so shy um, growing up. So for me, if you would have told me that now I'd make my living by talking in front of people, I would have I would have been like, never, you know? <laughs> so this is a big jump for me. And um, but I, I really love it. So I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. Um, you so your first book of poems, uh, Citizen Illegal, came out and had a, a lot of really good. It was received really well. Um, what was that like to, to release? I, I guess what was it like to release that book? And had you did it feel like you had, had stared step to it or did it feel like it kind of all came, you know, really fast and really hard? That's a good question. It feels like maybe both answers are true. Mm. I started writing poems when I was 16 and I started publishing poems, you know, by the time I was probably like 21. I had my first publication in 2008. So I was 20 when I started publishing poems. And so I had been working for a long time to, to publish a book. And that had always been the dream. And at the same time, when that book was released, it was received way better than I could have ever dreamed. I mean, that book literally made it possible for me to leave my nine to five at a nonprofit and really dedicate myself full time to being an artist 
it took me not just around the country from Chicago to Arizona to New York to Miami, but also um, I was invited to do a literary festival in Mexico City. So it took me back to my parents' country and allowed me to make connections with the artists there. So it it feels like both answers are true. It does feel like all of a sudden everything that I had been working for kind of flooded through for me. And at the same time, it did at the process of putting together the book felt very much like a one step at a time, one step forward, two steps back kind of deal. Yeah, you had been building that staircase for 10 years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, like I, I mentioned when I was reading your bio, your latest connect collection is called Promises of Gold, which I fa- found like a really it's it's punchy. That's a punchy title. Um, can you tell me about like what's the story behind that that title and um, why you named this collection Promises of Gold? Absolutely. I named it Promises of Gold because I was thinking about the collection of poems and all of the ways that I'm trying to undo some of some of the colonial harms that I see present in mm-hmm. Mexican American life and so much of it goes back to like the original Spanish colonial banner of God, gold and glory and thinking about how those tropes those ideas play such a huge factor in my life, in my parents' life, in my community life, and thinking about how to reclaim some of those things. So for me, Promises of Gold, you know, is maybe what the Spanish set out for when they came to the, you know, what we now know as Latin America, right? But for me, I'm also writing it, trying to think about what what are the sort of promises that I want to make? What, what does gold mean to me? What do mm-hmm. I want to value at that level? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's maybe a, a really good uh, spot to to dive into the first poem in this book. Um, would you mind reading that for us? Yeah, absolutely. So this first poem is called Tradition. And yeah, thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Tradition. The stories say Mexicans grew out of the dirt, same as the corn stalks. Of course, We weren't Mexicans back then. Whatever we were was lost. No, not lost. Submerged under empire. Died by blood and gunpowder. Believe what you want. Maybe we grew out of the dirt. Maybe agave is our sibling. Maybe mountains our mother. The oldest tradition I know is watching my dad bet money on Mexican boxers, no matter the odds. I don't know about y'all, but I'm the child of loss and the inheritor of losing. I'm not complaining though. I know the tradition. I bet everything I have on my people and dare the universe to beat us. That is Jose Oliveres reading a poem, um, tradition from his uh, latest publication, Promises of Gold. Jose, I told you when I asked you to read this poem that it gave me goosebumps. Um, and I think if it's if it's not clear to the listeners, but um, I'm Mexican-American. I'm depends how you count generations. But, you know, I consider myself second generation. Um, my dad was born here and my, my grandma Im- immigrated um, along with some of her kids. But um, there's a generational divide and sort of a um, a divide within her her with my with with um in my uncles and my aunts of some who were raised in Mexico and some who were raised in the US and so um there's there's all these divides within my own personal family and within the community that I grew up in um that y- you feel that loss you feel that disconnect of we're not that far from history but there's history missing there's stories we don't tell um and I felt like your that one poem just <laughs> broke it broke me it really did mm. Thank you. I I appreciate it. Yeah, that that loss, that gap that you're talking about is something that I think about a lot and think about how to articulate it and how to put words to to those stories that we'll never know, to what gets lost, mm-hmm. you know, on the road and in, in, in migration. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jose, I, I want to get back and talk to you a little bit more about your poem, but it is a pledge drive, so I, I need to... Um, pass it over to my colleague Diego who's in the studio with me. Diego, 
Tell us about the pledge drive and do we have anyone to thank yet? Oh yeah, yeah. Thank you so much and thank you for this wonderful conversation. I am learning a lot about uh, Jose's process and I think we are all learning yeah. also um, as we as we talk. Uh, but yeah, we have uh, our pledge drive. Uh, today, you can always donate uh, to us to support these wonderful programs, these wonderful conversations. We need 14 donations today. It's a big... Alan, Alan has big shoes that we have to fill. I know, I yeah. know. But we received our first donation. Oh, yay! <laughs> yeah, from Harry Richardson. Hey, thanks, Harry. Um, Harry lives in Madison, and his favorite shows are A Public Affair, um, Evening News, and Labor Radio. And I... Uh, Harry's words are, I appreciate the work that Al and ST do. Thank you, Harry. Yeah. And, and like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Alan will be back as early as next week, definitely in two weeks. He just needed a little bit of time to reset, and um, he'll be right back. And so think of this as, you know, we're, we're filling in for Alan. Um, we're bringing, bringing you a conversation that you wouldn't have heard otherwise. And uh, yeah, give us a give us a call six zero eight two five six two zero zero one extension one. And you can always donate online as well. So w o r t f m dot org. Remember to um, add fm there and uh, just click on it, and you'll see an orange donate button. And it will be easy to donate that yeah. way, too. You know, I think yeah. at the heart of a public affair is this is a show that is trying to bring you um, conversations that you wouldn't hear anywhere else and introducing you to, to people who you maybe weren't going to come across. Right. I want um, our listeners who maybe wouldn't have picked up this this book. Um, uh <laughs> Promises of Gold um, to, to learn about it here and and think about these deeper questions that we're going to have a conversation about and, and, yeah. and, and you can always go to like also to wisconsin book festival maybe like uh the the poetry reading is going to be different but now you are like getting to know uh bits and pieces about the writing process yeah, absolutely right and what has influenced uh the composition of of poems yeah, absolutely. Um, Diego, I saw you kind of scribbling as we were, were going. Was there anything in, in our conversation so far that has come up for you? Oh, um, yeah. I, I really like um, the in the poem, um, something that really struck me was the maybe, that how mm. that gap is constructed with, with that word, with like trying to like... Uh, suppose uh, speculate mm -hmm. uh, in certain ways but you're also undoing it as well and I was really struck also by your poem a uh, love poem that that has to do with the yellow and the yellow uh, cap yeah. and the ribbon yeah. and I think it also has that same tone with the maybe mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. like yeah I, I really liked how you were um Comparing um, um, beautiful object like the yellow ribbon with yellow lights from New York, but also like building that love relationship, yeah. as you said in your for listeners who haven't read this this book, uh, there's a, an author's note at the beginning, and you talk about the difficulty of writing love poems. So I, I was would like to know uh, your thought about writing love poems and how do they relate to uh, displaying this gap in your poetry, this gap that you're trying to reclaim, undo, explore in some ways. Yeah, hold on, I have a train passing. Give me oh, one second. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> this is this is live radio, folks. Jose is joining us um, it, from his car because he is a traveling poet. He's uh, currently traveling to another, um, another uh, reading that he's doing in California. Mm. And um, yeah, he it's this is live radio. This is WORT, which means folks are joining us wherever they can. And for for this case, it's Jose in our car. Um, 
but yeah, I, I, I think you really posed a question, uh, Diego, you are able to come at this as, as a, um, as a poet. And I think mm. that you have recently joined the small staff here at WORT yeah. as a fellow. Um, yeah. and one thing that I just really appreciate about our station is that mm. we are able to kind of be a, a collection of people with just wide, wide breaths of knowledge from all different parts of, um, the U S and, or not not the U.S. but the the world the community. Yeah. You came from Chile here for school yeah. and are now um, here at WORT and giving your expertise to the program. And it looks like Jose's train has passed. So Excellent. Jose, yes. um, were you able? Do you need Diego to give you a refresher on what his question was, or do you think you got it? I think I have it. The okay. question was about writing love poems. Yeah. Yeah. For that... me, I mean, I I love the composition of the question and the really the circling in on that word maybe i think Mm -hmm. maybe is an important word to me because having been born in the united states my connection to some of these stories and some of these you know ancestral folklores that are so important is speculative in a sense you know Mm -hmm. when i hear the stories of how Mexicanos came from the corn stalks. Mm-hmm. You know, there there's an immediate connection because I know how important maize is in so many different facets of of you know my family's life. And at the same time, it's it's tenuous in a sense because my relationship to corn is as a processed food. Even tortillas we don't make at home; mm-hmm. we get them mm-hmm. in packs from El Milagro. You know. Um, so maybe it is an important word to me. When I think about the difficulty of writing love poems, for me, I guess the main thing is that I really love love poems. I love how exciting they are. I love how emotional they are. I love how they can take a feeling that is routine in a sense and, and really capture how magical it it feels to be in love or to have a crush or something like that. For me, the difficulty in writing love poems is how is just that. How do you take something that can be so um, corny in a <laughs> sense, right? Something that can feel so that people have been writing about for years and years and years and generations. Mm-hmm. And how do you make it feel brand new? And so for me, that is kind of the difficulty in, in how I try to approach it is like, how do I capture the emotion, but try to make it you know, my own way? How do I do it my own way? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this this book is full of love poems, but it's not maybe necessarily in, in your traditional, like, romantic love sense. There, There's a few of those in, in here. Um, but I know you wrote in your author's note that this was, really came, a lot of these poems came during the height of the pandemic. And I wonder how that that distance and that precarity of that moment influenced how you wrote these poems, um, especially the ones that were, you know, directly about loving some, you know, one person. Yeah. I mean, I think during the height of the pandemic, a couple of things were true. You know, one, I just really missed my friends and I missed being able to hang out like in basements with them and listen to music or go to concerts or movies or whatever. And then the other thing that I think is true is that I wanted to write love poems because there was so much death and grief. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think if I had just kind of written into that darkness, it would have overwhelmed me, right? It would have, it was already consuming my life in so many ways. It would have just further consumed me. And so for me, writing love poems felt like a way to try to find the light in a moment that was really dark, right? And to to kind of hone in on that light. And I think that shows in the poems, which, you know, I think all of the love poems have these moments, you know, to go back to that word, maybe, where where, you know, it's tenuous, there's still, for me, it was important to write love poems that didn't feel outside of the moment of grief, but kind of found a way out from the grief, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, right? That that made it clear that it was still rooted in the real world and all of the hardships that that can sometimes entail. 
Yeah, that that brings me to thinking about um, there's a couple times that you write about both your parents, but um, specifically about who your mom would be with essentially without you and your brothers. Um, And I thought that that was such like a. I think there's a moment that we all have of like our, our parents are people, but we also can't see them outside of the lens of parents. Um, I wonder if you can shine some light on, on some of those poems. Yeah. I think for me, those are the poems that I'm most proud of Hmm. because you're right. I mean, like I said, I've been writing since I was 16 years old and I I've been writing about my parents probably just as long And in the beginning, particularly poems about my mom were rooted in her labor for my family. So I remember I wrote a poem about my mom once and it was about her making like a a big pot of pozole or something, right? But, you know, I showed it to a mentor of mine and, and she was like, this poem has really beautiful imagery, but maybe you should consider that your mom exists outside of the kitchen and and does, you know, has more to her than just making food and so immediately I was like you're right like this this is absolutely true and so now when I write about my mom I really try and think about how to how to like really bring out that fullness of her you know even though there are things that she won't tell me like my mom is very Catholic and Mm. she tells me in my family that you know she loves being a mom it's like her greatest joy and I think that's true and I still um and I still want to imagine her outside of that, you know, just because as big of an identity as motherhood is, you know, I'm I'm sure that somewhere before she was a mother, there were still many other identities that she had. You know, my mom is a sister. My mom was, you know, my mom immigrated to the United States. What does it take to make that journey? Those are all kinds of questions that I'm interested in exploring beyond my mom as mother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You... You, you know, you bring back to this early poem that you wrote about your mom in the kitchen. And I feel like it's such a it's also such a, a cultural thing, right, to be like one of the ways that especially at least it, it um, manifests in my um, family is that a, a full belly is a loved belly, right? Like a, a feeding someone is sharing part of who you are, sharing what you love and, and loving them. Um, so really interesting to to have your mentor push back so hard. Absolutely. And, you know, and I, of course, I think that's true. And and food does play a big part in a lot of my poems. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a I whole ode to tortillas. <laughs> I have a whole ode to tortillas. Yeah. And in my last book, I had an ode to cheese fries. So uh, someone told me that I'm like the poet laureate of food, which I'll take. <laughs> I'll, I'll accept that compliment. Um, so food is very important to me. And at the same time, you know, you can, I can, I can feel it when, when I'm wrong, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Especially when I'm writing a poem, when it doesn't quite feel complete. And with that poem about my mom, I was like, it can't just be my mom in a kitchen in this poem. There has to be, my mom has to find a way out of this kitchen Mm -hmm. if I'm going to write about her. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I want to check in with Diego. I know we've been a little bit quiet here, so uh, we gotta we gotta ask you guys to make make some donations. Um, Diego, are, do we find anyone new during the hour we or so far? And we haven't. Um, so let's just uh, yeah call people that uh, we need fourteen callers today. Yeah, in our show, that's uh, a big number, and I think that it can be. It can be um, intimidating to know that, you know, we need this show to really show up for a public affair because it is, you know, Alan is one of the longest running hosts of a public affair. He's been doing it for a long time. And I know that you guys really love him, right? You um, look forward to hearing his perspective and his questions. And I am I'm young in the game. You know, I've only been um, doing live radio shows for two, three years. Um, I have a lot to learn from Alan. I know that we are all learning a lot from Alan. And I don't, I think that by donating during this hour, you can say, you know, I support Alan's program, even when Alan's not there, Mm -hmm. even when his seat is being warmed by someone else. Um, And I hope that you are also getting a lot from this program. I hope that this is bringing you a conversation that you wouldn't have heard otherwise. I hope that um, 
you know, even if the the voice you hear is an Alan Ruff, uh, you are still, you are still, I hope I'm asking the questions that you would ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I would, I would love for you to, to let me know if that's what I'm doing, you know, call 608-256-2001. Ask a question when you make that, when you make your pledge or, mm-hmm. you know, tell me what I should be asking or go online and in the comment section, um, you know, tell me what you want to hear Alan talk about when he's back. All of those things, you know, I'm listening, I'm producing Alan's show, um, and I'm also warming his seat right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so 608-256-2001 or go online to wortfm.org. I think before we go back to another break, I think we can probably get at least five callers, right? That seems totally doable. That, that seems doable. Yeah. yeah, and like we have, um, we have Mary Lowe and Patrick that are like more than happy to receive your calls for our mm-hmm. donations and maybe in our next um beta we can talk about some of the needs uh that uh, that we are like thinking through for yeah. for our station yeah absolutely uh, we definitely have some needs here and you can help us fill them so 608-256-2001 or go online to wort fm.org um, let's go back to Jose Oliveres, who is the poet behind the new collection, Promises of Gold. He will be in town um, for the fall, uh, I always want to call it festival, but it's Mass- it's Wisconsin Book Festival Fall Celebration. Um, he's coming to the Central Library on October 21st at 1 p.m. And he'll be in the community room 301, though I'm sure that you'll you'll find signs that, that will lead you to, to the talk. Um, Jose, maybe this is a great time to jump into another poem. What do you think? Sure, absolutely. Um, let's go with the um, poem with a little less aggression. Sounds good to me. Poem with a little less aggression. To clarify, when I am invited to the halls of wealth, bearing the names of murderers, war propagandists, union busters, opioid crisis makers. I take my seat, I snap a flick, I pose with all my teeth showing how harmless I am. There is no ethical consumption under capitalism. It's something I heard a homie say once. There is no ethical consumption I parroted. Watch my mouth and you miss my hands. I cash every check and check my balance and balance my conscience. Under capitalism, we must all do what we must. There is only one truth under capitalism, says the parrot in the teeth of the fox in the mouth of the bear. The bear wants you to know he suffers too, anxiety and global warming, so watch your judgments. There are no truths under capitalism. I can't help the poor if I'm one of them, says the billionaire. I can't help the poor if I'm one of them, says the banker, signing off on my family's foreclosure. It's true, you know, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. Some truths are useless. Are useless. Hmm. That is Jose Oliveres reading his poem, A Poem with a Little Less Aggression, which is in his uh, most recent publication, A Promise of Gold. I um, I think this that that poem really plays to the the title of your your book, A Promise of Gold. Right, we have this idea of people coming to the U.S. to make a better life for themselves, and also trying to have these beliefs that you know capitalism doesn't work and it doesn't and it doesn't work um for everyone and and um you you're you're having to play a game that feels impossible to win and also you're gonna cash a check when you make it when you cash it when you cash a check no matter where that money comes from um yeah 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 absolutely i think for me this poem feels like a way to kind of call myself out and Mm. you know make sure that i'm not getting too self-righteous and i think there's a way where you know 
as a poet, you can start to feel, yeah, self-righteous or like I have all the answers or like I'm good and I'm doing what I can. And, and at the end of the day, like what I'm making is a book, which is a product that I have to sell in order to make money so that I can keep writing books and pay my bills. You know, like it is art doesn't exist outside of capitalism. Mm -hmm. It is also, you know, a part of this system. And so it's for me, this poem was a way to kind of, you know, calm, calm myself out in the sense and, and, you know, maybe let people look behind the curtain and say like, yes, I know I'm in this too. It's not just you. It's like you said, right? Capitalism, it works great for some people, but not a lot. And the rest of us, we have to figure out, you know, how to, how to make it work, how to do it in circumstances that are sometimes impossible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's also like this idea that it's, it's easy to talk one way, but like the practice of life just isn't, um, isn't the same way. Jose, I yeah. um, we talked a little bit about your your love poems, and we talked about how um, part of that came from the pandemic, and how um, that helped you, that made you think more about your relationships and the distance in relationships. But I was also so interested in how your home hometown really was such a uh, a character in this book. Uh, can you tell us about where you grew up and and how? Uh, Cal City as a character shows up in your poems. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in Calumet City, aka Cal City, which is a steel mill city mm. in the south of Chicago. Um, and the steel mills is what brought my family to Chicago. Growing up, I always kind of wondered how was it that, like, you know, not just my family, but so many Mexican families ended up in Chicago of all places where it is freezing cold and not at all close to, you know, to our family back home. Mm -hmm. um, and and I came to discover that it was really the steel mills. And um, so the steel mills are important. And then, of course, through no fault of any of the workers, the steel mills started closing in the early 2000s. And so suddenly this thing that made it possible for my family to, you know, to live and survive and, and to achieve some of the things that are markers of the American dream. You know, my dad was able to buy a house. Um, once the steel mill closed, you know, that house, not only was he no longer able to pay the mortgage, but also the value of the house was no longer even what it was when he bought it, right? It, it kind of had this cataclysmic effect on everything. And so for me, growing up in the middle of that kind of seeing my parents do everything right in a sense and still kind of be, be what what's the word, be kind of still, still find themselves like in the clenches of capitalism, yeah. still find themselves, you know, with the impossible task ahead of them of trying to make a mortgage payment with no jobs. Um, you know, had a huge impact on me. Um, one of the one of the stories that I tell is, you know, I graduated. I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. I graduated from Harvard University, and the same year that I graduated from university, um, our family lost, had our house foreclosed, mm -hmm. and so those two things happened the same year. And so for me, it was like a sign that, you know, it's going to take much more than individual achievement in order to kind of really make a difference in our communities. Like when it comes to trying to do the work of find, finding solutions, it has to be communal efforts. It can't just be about one person making enough money that they're going to be able to to pay everyone in the family's bills. It's just, it, it's impossible right. um, to go back to that word. And so Calumet City um, was just like huge in my political development, of course, also as like a cultural, uh, character Calumet City is a city that is like very Mexican and very black but also was very transient when I was mm -hmm. growing up so it started off as like a white immigrant suburb and then slowly became more and more Mexican and more and more African-American um, and so seeing all of those different things happening at the same time I think it was just a really dynamic place to grow up yeah and it 
um, it seems like a lot of the people who you, you know, a lot of your friends who you write about in the, the book are almost like you, you have them frozen in time in Cal City also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. I mean, Calumet City in some ways does feel a little bit frozen in time mm-hmm. um, because, for example, the the biggest kind of landmark in Calumet City is the mall. There's a mall called River Oaks Mall, and it's where we all used to hang out. Even when we had no money, we, that was the place to hang out and just kind of walk around with your friends and, you know, talk to different friends or whatever. Um, and it was also the place where, like, you know, you could get a job working at one of the stores and um, it was just important. And for a mall to be like the most important place at a time when most people do their online, their shopping online, it, it does kind of feel stuck in time. Like mm-hmm. I, I, and I also left, you know what I mean? I went away to college and, and no longer live there. And so it is kind of frozen in time for me. Mm-hmm. Like I still can see people wearing like the baggy white tees and the baggy jeans, even though that's, you know, no longer the style. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one thing that was striking for me about your book is that, yeah, it was very place specific and you're you're talking about the specific mall. But I think that like that exists everywhere, you know, that I think that that you can find, you know, a group of kids that are hanging out in the mall at Cal City in Nebraska and you can find it in, you know, outside of New York and you can find it really anywhere. Um, and I, I could I could picture you guys, you know, I could picture you um they're having I think you said you know all you could afford was a chicken finger basket and I could see you eating the chicken finger basket yeah and that was a good time that was if we had between the five of us if we had enough money to share split some chicken fingers and fries we were living good that was that was teenage dreams right there we were doing all right yeah um I wonder if we can well, let me check in with Diego real quick. And then I have I want to move on to I think you challenge masculinity in a really beautiful way in the book. And so I would love to get back there once I once I check in with Diego. Um, uh, Diego, do we get any pledges over the last little bit? Unfortunately, we haven't. <laughs> and I really want to hear the ring bell. Yeah, we got to hear it. Yeah, let's do it. One for Harry. Yeah, one for Harry again. Thank you, Harry. Um, yeah. Yeah, we hope we find more donations because we can also work more on like um some of our, some of our needs yeah absolutely. like uh we haven't um um uh, changed uh our roof and the windows yeah. so we need to maintain them in a better way and we haven't uh is it preserve i i, yeah, I don't preserve, know yeah. preserve yeah. them uh, so they've been here with the station yeah. all these years. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and also our uh, elevator. Yes. Yeah, we got some problems last week, but they were resolved. Uh, right, but we were able to fix it, but it's not necessarily a long-term solution for the for the elevator. Absolutely. Exactly. And those are just our like building needs. I think building one thing about um, part of the reason that you are at war right now is to help build um, a um, a program that brings in more. Oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, we just got a pledge online. But part of the reason that you're here is that you're building us out to have more um, reporters and they're going to need recorders. And that's just a really classic need that needs to needs to happen. Exactly. We're going to have a summer news program that we will can we can talk more about it. But uh, let's hear our. Yeah, we have an anonymous donor from Madison. Thanks, Anonymous. And um, she says that she's donating in honor of Jada Siri Ramos, which is me, who is holding it all together during this fundraising drive. Thank you. And she's also donating to welcome Diego to his first Wart fundraising drive. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Anonymous. We really appreciate it. So you can you can join Anonymous and you can join um, Harry by calling the station at 608 256 2001 or going online to wortfm.org. This is um, two of our 17 
Is that right? 17? And 14, 14 cores. 14. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we only need 12 more of you. Um, that's a little less than one a minute. So just get on the phone. <laughs> I know this has really been, um, you know, you've been listening in and you haven't had a chance to pick up the phone. Maybe you were driving and you just got home. Give us a call, 608-256-2001, or go online to wortfm.org and make your donations there. All right, Jose, I'm going to come back to you now. Um, like I mentioned, your book, you you talk a lot, maybe not, cha- I, I struggle to say that you were challenging masculinity, but more calling out masculinity in some of your your pieces. This, um, I don't know, I think we like, like, we say like machismo, but I think it's just sort of like, I, I, I think, I mean, I think it exists within Mexican culture a lot, but it's not, it's not isolated, I think. To Mexican culture, I think it's I think it's any anyone who's really had to not think about how they are feeling in order to survive survive in this world, um, and specifically in America. And I, why? I guess may, I was going to say why? Why would you? But maybe that that answer is obvious. Why would Why would this be something that you need to talk about in your poetry? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you're right that when we're talking about machismo, which is like a toxic form of masculinity that is very stoic and not in touch with its feelings and very violent at times, um, only expressive through violence, we'll say. Um, It's not exclusive to Mexican culture, you know what I mean? Something that is definitely in in various communities. Um, It felt important for me to talk about for a number of reasons. One is that, as I was saying, you know, I visit a lot of high schools and colleges and I talk mm-hmm. to a lot of young men and what they want to talk to me the most is like their fears that they are becoming like other men that they know and they don't know how to necessarily stop that. Um, they don't know what to do about that, you know? Um, and so for me, it was a way to like continue that conversation and to, to offer some of the questions that I've been asking myself that me and my friends ask each other, you know, um, as a way to maybe provide a roadmap for how they can have conversations about, you know, how, how can we be more loving towards each other? What does it mean to be men that are not afraid of love, that are not afraid of romantic love, that are not afraid of platonically loving other men? Those felt like important questions to ask, you know, within a Mexican-American context, but also beyond. Um, and, and, you know, I think personally for me, the other thing is, as a poet, I'm always kind of drawn towards the surprising. And I think, again, when I was writing the poems, there was something about those those poems about masculinity that felt surprising and that mm-hmm. led me to unexpected places. So for me, those are some of the reasons why I was I was drawn to those themes. Yeah, I think that the the idea that you... You're, you're writing for the young men who are reading your poems, I think is is really important. I think that, um, I, I mean, I think even when I was growing up and I'm not, you know, I'm almost 30, I'm not very old. I, I feel like I had a really hard time finding people who, I think I, I found, had a really hard time finding examples of people doing what I wanted to do um, who looked like me, that felt like the door was open. And, you know, I don't, Again, I don't that wasn't very long ago, right? But to have to be in a place where we are right now, I think with the visibility being so much more that you can open your phone, you can pick up a um a, po- a book of poetry, you can go to a like a poetry reading at the library and like see someone who is writing poems and is like in touch with their feelings in a way that maybe isn't the way that you isn't the way that your immediate surrounding is is behaving and I think open so many doors for for young people yeah absolutely I mean for me for example and this has less to do with masculinity but I didn't know that you were allowed to write poems mm-hmm. in Spanish and in English until I read the poems of Willy Perdomo and then mm-hmm. I was like oh wow like you don't necessarily have to choose one language or the other you can kind of 
go back and forth and play with the, you know, have them be in conversation with each other. And so I think until you see something, you know, you don't necessarily know that it's possible. And so for me, yeah, I, I think, you know, I think some young men will probably read those poems and, and kind of laugh or roll their eyes and move on. You know what I mean? But for some, for some young men and for some young readers, period, right? Men or not. Yeah. Um, it'll be, it'll be like, oh, wow, we can, we can talk about this. We can write about this. We can, you know, we can say these things to each other and, and that might be helpful for them. Yeah. Um, you just mentioned Willie and I, will say that when I was prepping for the show, I, I listened to the podcast that you had in like 2015, 2016 or 2016, 2017. Um, and that, that is a good interview. I highly recommend what the poem, the po, uh, your podcast is called the, what's it called? The, the Poetry Gods. The Poetry Gods, um, which you can find on SoundCloud. And I think your most listened to interview is with, is with Willie. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, that that one was a good one. We had a lot of fun with those interviews. For me, that was kind of, you know, I didn't go get a master's degree in poetry. That podcast was how I got to ask questions of mm. the writers that I admired and kind of come to some con conclusions about my own craft. Yeah, yeah. I'd highly recommend it. Um, I will make sure that I do a little post in, in the web post today so that it is um, accessible for our listeners today if they want to hear more of you a couple years back. We'll say yeah a, a much wilder <laughs> version of me i will say yeah, we this were having a good time on that podcast it's, it's and it's great um i have one more poem that i was hoping to have you read um and it kind of goes i think it it reads to the the time and the the place that we are in um and the I, th I think if we harken back to the idea that you mentioned when you when we started of you as a a young kid who was being quiet and you know not be voicing their opinions and um, following the rules, I think this is maybe the exact opposite of of who you were then. Um, so, would you mind reading American Tragedy? Of course. Um, this poem is called American Tragedy, and uh, yeah, thank you so much to everybody listening, everybody pledging. Um, here we go. American Tragedy. Given your circumstances, you become mouthless, therefore voiceless. Therefore, your movements require translation. Given steel, I made art objects. Given art objects, the audience made noise. The noise was harmless to the state. Therefore, the state reciprocated with grants. It did not matter that my art objects were prison bars bent into letters to spell the word abolition. It did not matter that my art objects said, forget Ronald Reagan, said all presidents stink. The state cannot distinguish between art objects. Barbed wire and roses are equal to the state. The state loves art objects until the art objects are demolition crews outside police headquarters. Given demolition crews in front of police headquarters, the state will murder artists. Artists don't destroy police, therefore the state feeds artists. The state allows artists to sit on its lap. Given the constraints of capitalism, given rent due every month, given family members in need, given insulin prices, the artists will accept the lap of the state. Therefore, those proclaiming to speak for the voiceless are being translated by the state. Therefore, a microphone is the state's constant art object. Like a kaleidoscope, it refracts the speaker's voice into the same patriotic nonsense. Some artists don't know they are being used by the state. This makes them better compensated. Representation doesn't matter for the children being held by the state. Whatever they say isn't fit for art. Given applause isn't an option. Given the exhibit is permanent. Given its ugliness, its steel, its pickled breath unfit for postcard. Therefore, it is easier to listen to an artist outside detention, capable of spinning the secret into a coin we can share at a dinner party, where everyone will sigh and look contemplatively. That's their part in this American tragedy. 
That is Jose Oliveres, the author of Promises of Gold, which is his latest collection of poems. He will be at the Central Library on Saturday, October 21st at 1.30 p.m. Um, to read from his his collection and also to answer your questions. So um, if you've enjoyed this hour, you should definitely go check him out at Central. Um, Jose, there we've got like three minutes left really and I I just wanted to ask um, I found this book really the fact that you have this book translated um, and that it isn't just translated as in go buy an English copy or buy a Spanish copy it's a it's one copy you know read it in whichever language you want or read it in both Um, what was it like working with the translator you worked with why did you decide to do it that way Um, I know giving you three minutes to answer kind of a big question but yeah and I'm so long-winded. I apologize. All right. <laughs> no worries. Um, I wanted to have the book be bilingual in part because growing up, when I was an English language learner, I couldn't share any of the books that I was reading in school with my parents, mm-hmm. right? If I was assigned James and the Giant Peach, if I was assigned, um, you know, the Boxcar Children, Those are books that I loved, but they were only available in English. I couldn't share them with my parents or have them read a chapter with me. Um, And so for me to have this book, you know, is for any of those families that find themselves in similar situation that, you know, want to read along with their with their children that want to do like a family book club that, you know, I think about families like mine, there weren't you know, we couldn't even really have a family book club with any of the books in English that we were reading. So um, I wanted to do something for them um, as a way to kind of, you know, I was thinking about the young person that I was. And so, you know, I think a book like this would have been useful to me when I was young. So I hope that it's useful now. And and that's really at the heart of it. And it was fantastic working with the translator, David Ruano Gonzalez, who's from Mexico City and, and is a brilliant poet in his own right. Well, that um, has been Jose Oliveres, the author of Promises of Gold. Jose, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you. Um, all right, Diego, we have great news, actually, on the... We had a web donation during that last little bit. Martin F. Smith, we do the honors. Yay! <laughs> thank you, Martin. Thank you, Martin. Um... We really appreciate you. It's not too late. Go online, wortfm.org, or call us, 608-256-2001. Diego's going to be taking pledges for the next hour, so, you know, you can uh, say that, say that, um, you can say this is for a public affair and and we'll count it towards us, um, or you can donate to Letters in Politics, but um, this has been a really good pledge drive, um, and we appreciate everyone who's given. Um, For this show, it was Anonymous and Martin F. Smith and Harry Richardson. Yeah, and uh, thank you so much for all your support for supporting Poetry, our show, and Jade's wonderful work. And and we also want to thank Mary, Lowe, and Patrick. Yeah. uh, Who were also um who have been helping us with the, with the calls with the donations and jack our engineer yeah. today he has been doing a great job thanks jack you're holding it down in the the combo all by yourself we appreciate that so that we were able to come in and do the do the show for you um again we really appreciate anonymous martin f smith harry richardson and you the listener who's calling in at the last minute you are listening to A Public Affair. I've been your host, Jade Siri Ramos. Uh, this is WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio.